I went under because I was aggressive. I didn't have partners. I was doing deals without any equity whatsoever, uh, cash, hard equity. I would buy this property, wait 18 months, refinance it, take cash out. I didn't build reserves at all. Had I held on to cash reserves of just say as little as $300,000 when everything stopped in 2008. I could have saved the portfolio that I'd built up of $25 million. Hey investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here, and get ready to invest to win. Hello, investors. This is Garrett Wong, your host of the Investing to Win podcast. I just finished an interview with Stuart Heath from Harvard Grace Capital. He's a CPA from Tennessee running a syndication fund, and we spoke today about the lessons he learned in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. But we also dove into purposeful investing in commercial real estate. There's lots of insights here. Let me know what you think. Hello, hello. This is Garrett Wong, your host of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, we have a guest from down south, uh, Stuart Heath. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I don't actually know too much about you, so I am very intrigued uh, to hear your background. So why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and, and how you got started? Sure. Yeah, glad to. Uh, my name is Stuart Heath. I am a certified public accountant. Uh, and I grew up in a family uh, uh, you know, where my dad was a CPA as well. So I sort of grew, grew up thinking that's what normal people did for a living. And, and I followed in my dad's footsteps. He went to Auburn University. I went to Auburn University. And you know, I, he, he is an accountant. I majored in accounting. And I got, and got a great job with a great company. And, and it's sort of like, I don't really like this, <laughs> you know. Uh, I was. I went to work for Price Waterhouse, and I was a uh, an, an auditor. That's where most uh, accountants in public accounting sort of cut their teeth. And and auditing, you know, means that you are representing to the public, you know, information, the condition of of your clients' uh, financial statements. Um, I didn't really like that mindset. I, I like being much more of an advocate. So I transitioned into uh, tax practice uh, at Pricewaterhouse and did that for a couple of years. And then at the um, grand age of 25, decided, oh, I got this. I can do this on my own. Uh, and so started my own uh, CPA firm, uh, never really zeroing in on the part that um, it still wasn't what I really liked to do. But I continued to do that. And, and I still have a practice uh, and still have clients. Some of them I've had 30 years. But what really led me into real estate was observing and watching my more successful clients. Uh, one in particular 
she stands out to me. Um, uh, when I first met her, she, she, I mean, she was in the whole IRS, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Uh, w- you know, when I met her, um, I like to clarify that because, you know, I wasn't her accountant that got her in that hole. <laughs> but um, uh, and she credits me with helping her get out of it. But I'm just like, yeah, no, um, she was a real estate agent. She was uh, doing fix and flips and she was the top selling real estate agent at her firm in her office year in, year out. Uh, I mean, to the point where they actually took her out of the salesperson of the month competition, just gave her her own parking space because she was that good. And so she just, you know, used real estate and earned her way out of that hole. Always been amazed at that. She's still a client. You know, 30, 32 years. It swerved that back into my story. Um, so uh, along about the year 2000, uh, I'm in the middle of tax season and I'm just, you know, um, working 18 hours a day and thinking, you know, I don't like this. Uh, and, and I was making great money, but I wasn't building any wealth. Uh, and so then I started to turn towards real estate uh, and not too long thereafter, bought my first duplex. Uh, after that, I bought 14 duplexes uh, and then I started buying some condos and uh, and very quickly went from there, took a class. I got a contractor's license. I started building homes with with some partners uh, and, and, and then got into development and, and got really, really heavy into it. And, and I didn't make it really out of 2008, 2009 in whole, but. I don't blame real estate for that. I, I blame my aggressiveness for that. Uh, and we can talk more about that. Went back to consulting and, and then took some corporate level, C-level jobs. That was CFO for a couple of different firms over the next 10 years. And then you know, about 2017, I rolled back out doing working for myself and started getting back into real estate. But in 2020, um, I got some partners and we formed Harvard Grace Capital, where we're now syndicating commercial projects. Uh, We've done three now. Uh, And so we're pretty slow. We're pretty deliberate. But we're only we're only bringing to market uh, stabilized cash flowing properties. So that's that's my journey in a nutshell. Wow. Okay, Lots to unpack there. But let me clarify for the audience, because I, I introduced you as from being down south, and maybe they can hear a bit of an accent. I'm sure I have a Canadian <laughs> accent here. And you mentioned the IRS, but where are you based and have you been there for a while? Yeah, I've, uh, I'm based in Tennessee, southern middle Tennessee specifically, Spring Hill. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been in uh, around the Nashville market my entire career. Right, right now, we are kind of focused on Huntsville. So, um, and I live in southern middle Tennessee, which is very close to Huntsville. Wow. So, yeah, 2008, I think, wasn't a pleasant time for anybody. You call it a crisis. I'm sure people would have stronger words for that. But, you know, you mentioned some losses. How did that period shape your understanding of real estate investing and what lessons did you maybe take away from that experience? It didn't shake my belief in that real estate should be a core of most everyone's portfolio. It gave me a much more healthier respect for debt and the proper use of leverage uh, in a transaction. I went under because I was aggressive. 
uh, and, 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 you know, I was, I didn't have partners. I was doing deals without any equity whatsoever, uh, cash, hard equity. I would buy this property, wait 18 months, refinance it, take cash out. Uh, and, and, you know, well, they call it equity stepping, uh, which, you know, all my bank partners were well aware of and, and, and happy to go along until, you know, the merry-go-round ended. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I'm a CPA. I'm smart enough to know what I'm doing. There was, I didn't build reserves at all, could have, uh, and, and really didn't hold on to any cash reserves. And had I held on to cash reserves uh, of just say as little as $300,000 when everything stopped in 2008, yeah, I could have um, saved the portfolio that I'd built up of $25 million. Um, uh, and carried it for a year, you know, with with just really a small amount of reserves, and and and, and still have some of those assets. I mean, I had I had put together some some great assets. Uh, probably would have liked to let some of them go, but um, or or cashed out by now. But so it's just basic good investing fundamentals because you don't know what you don't know. Nobody knew that the world would come to a screeching halt in 2020 with a worldwide pandemic. Nobody expected 60% unemployment. You know, while the markets and, and many people have done great since then, uh, you, you know, the blue collar folks didn't do so well back then. And you know, also, nobody knew that um, the Fed was going to raise interest rates 500 basis points in a year. We sort of had a suspicion. A lot of us were standing around asking in late 2020, why aren't they raising interest rates? I mean, the economy was on fire. To me, it was the most predictable inflation period in the history of man. So I, I say all that. We don't know what we don't know. So you've got to have reserves. It's the same reason you buy insurance, because you don't know what can happen or what will happen. That, that has changed how I approach investing, uh, and especially real estate investing. We build reserves into every deal that we do. And some I've been accused of having too much reserves, but you know, I've seen the lack of, and does it impact IRRs? Yeah, it does. But nothing will impact the IRR like having to give a property back to the bank. Uh, you know, that tends to put the IRR in the tank. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, I just released, I think yesterday, the day before uh, an Instagram reel on cautioning people to not be obsessed about cash flow versus equity. Obviously, there's differing opinions, but I find a lot of starting out investors or even seasoned ones are just chasing that almighty cash flow. And if you're not building equity at the same time, I think you're, you're touching on a few of those challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you got to drill down a layer or two and say, all right, what's driving the cash flow? Is your cash flow somewhat based on a uh, on a, a very favorable interest rate that could change next month, you know, uh, or or how solid is the the tenant base that's that's uh, providing the the top of the funnel for the cash flow? I mean, you should be building equity when you have cash flow, but are you uh, are you maintaining your property properly to that that maintains the equity? You know, so it's it's the whole picture. 
Yeah, you know what, you, you kind of, uh, <laughs> I was going to ask about, you know, your 35 years in real estate and some lessons. Um, and we're kind of touching on those because what you're talking about being a CPA is underwriting the asset ahead of time and making sure you're looking at absolutely everything, not just one sexy aspect of it, right? Yeah, we just exited a contract last week. And I, I really want these properties. I mean, they're literally a quarter mile from my house. And I kind of like owning stuff that's, and these are retail properties. I live in a small suburb of Huntsville on the Tennessee side of the line. You know, we did our due diligence and the price wasn't too bad. But then doing our due diligence, we realized, well, okay, there's 17 HVAC units with an average age of 15 years. Yeah, they're not maintaining them. Every single one of them had a dirty coil in it. And that reduces the life of them too. So, you know, we're just, all right, in the next three years, I've got a quarter million dollars of CapEx to do uh, on that property. Even then, you know, all right, at a price, I'm still game. But but what really broke uh, it for us is uh, they were renewing a few leases and when they sent us the leases, you know, they were new five-year leases, which is great for that type of a property. Then we read the termination clause and the tenant had a 90-day out. I've, I've never seen such in, in, a, uh, in a commercial uh, property like that. So, you know, so what it amounted to was a, uh, was a 90-day lease with five-year guaranteed pricing. It's, I'm not opposed to 90 day leases, but I want I want my 30% premium rents for that. <laughs> you know, uh, so I mean, that's that's what uh, that's what we, we really backed out of it. It's just like they, they weren't they're not taking care of their properties physically or financially. So I, no, didn't want I to love buy that. Somebody I love that. Problem. You know, getting down into the weeds on that, let's drill down a bit, because the warning sign itself, when you're not just talking about you know, coils and, you know, potential HVAC units, you're talking about what else am I going to find, right? And that's fine. I mean, if the lift and the reno is going to be sufficient enough, but you're, what you're saying is your and your partner's experience sees these warning signs and it's like, okay, if they're, if they're not maintaining this and they're not writing a proper lease, what else are we going to find that are going to be the surprises that, I mean, there's always going to be surprises. You can't avoid it. So There's always going to be, you know, is the roof leaking? Well, we didn't see it, but, you know, in truth, we didn't finish doing our due diligence when we found the HVAC and just like, all right, so because that costs us money. So, um, all right. So we stopped there, started trying to renegotiate the price, uh, knowing that we would have to spend some more. And, and I'll say part of my experience is this is a uh, physician owned property. You know, they, they see the benefits of real estate in investing themselves. Uh, but I found an awful lot of physician-owned properties are not professionally managed. Uh, they, they, either write, they either write bad or dumb leases or, or uh, many times you find that they're taking beautiful care of the, the physical structure. Uh, but they don't understand leasing at all. And when you're doing multi-year leases, kind of like reserves, you have to plan for the ex- unexpected. Yeah, uh, there was another building down in Huntsville that I really, really wanted, still do. All of their leases were flat leases, no CAM provisions, and had been flat for, for eight years. 
and, and they didn't understand. Um, they didn't. I, I, I talked to him. It was a very nice couple. Uh, you know, uh, I told them what to do to go fix it. And then I said, you need to hold on to this building for four more years after you fix the leases. I don't know if they're doing that or not, uh, but they were convinced their their building was worth five million dollars, and you know my numbers said that it was worth three point four. That was before interest rates ticked up a few more times. When you're dealing in multi year leases, you've got to plan for the unexpected. You've got to build in rate increases and and provisions for common area maintenance factors to increase, and, and so forth and so on. Yeah, no, um, something that uh, you said just. Uh resonated with me again. Um, I mean, as you know, this podcast is not about me just bringing on a bunch of real estate investors and tooting our own horns. I'm trying to really bring back to the community some good lessons. Um, you know, being a CPA, um, one thing I, I can be almost certain that no one has ever accused accountants of being emotional, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and you talk, but you said it twice, Stuart, you know, you, there's a couple properties right near where you live. You're like, you really, really liked those, right? And yet you still had the courage to walk away from those because the analysis wasn't good. Speak to me about emotion versus real estate being just inventory and part of the business. Well, anybody who knows me for any part of my, I'm a passionate guy. I, I can get emotional. And I made many mistakes early in my career by bulldogging and making sure I bought properties, ignoring the warning signs. Y you know, it's the old, I'll make it up on volume kind of excuse. Um, you know, it's a mistake. I'm much older now. You know, I'm, I have the ability to learn from my mistakes. I've also learned to be patient. Our most recent acquisition was a property that we liked. Uh, and, and we talked to those owners for six months. Same, it's, it's another physician-owned property. A little bit different. They, to their credit, they hired out uh, the leasing side to professional people. who, And they wrote really good leases. Uh, with uh, The problem with this one is that the doctor occupied 60% of the building and he was retiring. Uh, and so his practice office is there. Then he had this unfinished space that, you know, he worked on his race cars. And so, you know, he's just a guy like me and you, you know, because uh, he had a place for his race cars. They thought so th their their come on to the market was that the doctor would lease back that space for one year. And my position is I don't value a one year lease unless they've given me indication that they plan to renew. So I have to plan on vacancy for that, especially in a commercial property. It's not that unusual that, you know, it can take a year to fill a, fill a vacancy. But same thing, built a nice relationship. Uh, they were at 2.5. And I first made my offer back before Thanksgiving um, 1.5. I'll give you 1.5 because that's what the numbers show. And then they came back, well, how about 2.2? I said, how about 1.5? And so we, we did that until early March. And they said, how about 1.6? I said, okay. And so we just closed it for 1.6. It's a 12,500 square foot office building. You know, we're, we're actively leasing the, the doctor's office. But now in the unfinished space, we're moving forward uh, with the city um, uh, permission, and we're going to put some uh, uh, climate-controlled storage in there where where there's not. So it's sort of a downtown hospital district area. 
there's not any storage for a, a three mile radius. And what there is is on the other side of a pretty major highway, which is pretty hard to get across from one side to the other. So um, we should realize a lot more from that space than if we built it out and rented it for office. Uh, so um, you know, we're pretty excited about that one. Um, but I don't know how long, you know, the, the, the built out office will, will take, but um, so I guess what I'm long story short is I'm I've learned to be patient too. I, I, once I see something that I want, I, I just, uh, you know, it, you've got to wait until the deal is right. Because right, if you, you make your money on the buy, you don't make your money when you sell. 100%. And uh, wow, I mean, 2.5 to 1.6. I think we can all learn something from you from negotiating and being patient. <laughs> but yeah, let me round out the, the whole picture for the audience. Why don't we back up two steps and... Harvard Grace Capital, can you sort of explain to us the mission, how it aims to help people build wealth through real estate investing? I touched on that early on. Part of my conviction through my own experience is, is that um, cash flowing assets should be the core of, uh, of everyone's investment portfolio. If uh, I read recently a survey of um, I think it was a couple of thousand family offices and uh, well into the 90% of them had core investment positions of real estate. And I call that the boring part of your investment portfolio. And it should be boring if it's core. That doesn't mean it's your whole portfolio. Uh, and once you've established a base uh, for, for whatever your investment objectives are, then you have other pieces where you can go buy Bitcoin or tech stocks or, or whatever, and, and where you can perhaps achieve your greater capital gains all the while uh, having comfort and security in, in your core positions. Now, that can be partially dividend stocks, dividend paying stocks with a cash flow position. Uh, although there's, um, th there's, there's none of the big dividend paying stocks that, that have, Paid a dividend, you know, as long as you know, income-producing real estate will generally uh, last. So, anyway, obviously, I'm in favor of the core being real estate, but but primarily the core should be cash flowing. So, what Harvard Grace has come to market to do is to provide investors re recurring and increasing cash returns from the investments that we bring to market. We are not doing development deals that we're bringing to market. I mean, I get offered these all the time and, and I've done it before. And, you know, it comes back to passion. I really want to do them, but, um, but, but that's not what we're, what we're bringing to market. And we're not, we're not doing big value ads. Uh, we're not buying old apartment buildings and fixing them up. That is not skill sets that's in our wheelhouse right now. We are buying stabilized properties where we do see Room for improvement through proper management. You know, uh, if I can buy it right and I know I can fix that lease 24 months or 36 months from now, uh, then there's your value add. You know, you increase your, um, your rent income 10%. Yeah. I just made that asset a lot more valuable. So we're not really into the construction side or the development side. We're, we're trying to value add from the financial and management side. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Um, some light bulbs are going off here <laughs> because 
you seem to have started out the same way I did as a single duplex, multiplex guy. Um, sure. I mean, I, I got hurt in some of these, uh, you know, downturns as well. But that you have a lot of experience in that. Why? Why turn to commercial? Honestly, um, it's a personal reason. I do not like residential management. We like what I call suburban office. Some people call it service retail. And we like storage. I think housing is the path to follow in commercial real estate investing. Uh, for instance, Huntsville has 14,653 apartment units under construction right now. Believe me, we know where they are and we're looking around there because small commercial, commercial, small retail and, and suburban office will, um, they will correlate directly with housing growth in, in every market and has probably as long as um, records have been kept. So, uh, we're playing the housing play, but uh, I, I, I like storage because it's doing housing without the toilets and you don't have the management headaches, um, you know, long evictions and stuff like that. I, I, I had 200 personal rentals at one point and um, I just decided that was my definition of hell um, because we, we do manage everything that we that we bring to market. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital, or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. Okay, so I have a question then. We're talking office spaces. We had a thing called COVID. I know if you were to come up here to Manitoba, um, right now it's very, very warm. It was, I think, 90 degrees yesterday, but uh, don't come in winter. But no, all jokes aside, office spaces, I see a lot of release signs. Is there like, how, how are you combating that challenge or are there opportunities there? I know we, I've had a lot of people tell me I'm crazy. You're doing office. Yeah. Um, no, listen, listen to what I said. I said suburban office service retail. There's six subcategories of office. What we are not interested in at all are central business district uh, class A office buildings. You know, these are the high profile, usually have somebody's name on them uh, or they're in a, um, you know, a, a newer suburban area where people used to just go and work. The type of office 
uh, you know, service retail that we do are they host doctors' offices, insurance companies, mortgage companies, dentists, uh, people where the properties where the tenants are consumer facing, and they are not going remote. Your doctor is not going remote; he's not coming to see you. There are businesses like mortgage companies and insurance agencies that are legally required to have office space. You know, that could change someday, but um, the government has an interest in in those people because of fraud, you know, generations ago uh, of, of lending and, and insurance. They have an interest in these people maintaining an office. So uh, they, they are required to do so. And, and they're facing the consumer. Uh, we're not really interested in what comes to mind with most people. Uh, with office. And as soon as I say that, all real estate is local and Huntsville is a different market and Huntsville is primarily a defense contracting town. And a lot of these defense contractors never stopped going to the office because a lot of the work that they do has to be done inside a skiff, you know, an electronic protected zone uh, and that's still the case. So, you know, defense contact contractors haven't exactly vacated their office down here. So, um, but I don't know what that future holds. Um, there's an awful lot of building in that sector down here. So, um, so and it, that's just, that's just, you know, the class A subclass is just not something that we are focusing on right now. We're focusing on consumers. No, I love it. I love it. That's uh, probably the best answer that I've heard when I've asked that question. And smart. I love it that you said you're following the residential because uh, that allows you to also predict and maybe buy some assets um, ahead of time. Um, and then, yeah, redo those leases and you're getting value out of that paper. Um, it's brilliant. I love it. Why don't you, uh, I, I know you said your purpose, I think you just said you're purposefully, um, purposefully investing locally. I believe the Tennessee Valley. Uh, why? Why is that? Well, a um, couple of reasons. Uh, as I already said, we manage what we buy. I've never had a good experience with a third-party property manager. I'm not saying that there aren't good ones out there. <laughs> I'm just saying I never met them. So we manage every deal that we sponsor. That means it has to be close to home. So our, our general rule is we can't be further away than an, than an hour from that property. So I, I'm investing what I know. Now, I could be up in Nashville with with almost every other real estate investor in the world, it seems. Uh, I, I think the Nashville proper is a very crowded market space. It's still a great market. I'm not against my, my, my hometown. I just think there's better deals in some of the smaller markets. Now, Huntsville's hardly a small market anymore. Uh, this is our um, our focus area, what I call... Uh, yeah, the Tennessee Valley or the five, the 840-565 corridor. So 840 is a loop, is an interstate connector south of Nashville and 565 is an interstate connection that goes to northern Alabama. And, and I'm looking at all of the communities in between those two roads, uh, including some sub-communities like where I live in Fayetteville, Tennessee. There's just, you know, Huntsville is a town that has doubled in size in the last 12 years. Uh, there seems to be no end to it. It reminds me of Nashville 30 years ago when I missed 
every opportunity that I saw in the rearview mirror. Uh, and so, all right, I'm not going to miss these. Uh, you know, there's just more and more industry and Huntsville's economy is becoming more and more balanced. It's not just, you know, government and, and government contractors, it's manufacturing, it's, uh, it's service providers all coming into that community. Uh, it's, it's a very highly educated community. Yeah, the, their Chamber of Commerce loves to brag that it's the highest number of PhDs per capita than any other city in the nation. Uh, and well, you know what? They're, most of them are rocket scientists. <laughs> so literally, you know, USA Today, or, or I'm sorry, US News, yeah, last year it was the best place to live. And this year it's the second best place to live, according to, according to their report. Uh, so just it's just a target-rich environment for a lot of um, uh, assets that I think have a lot of uh, room to run. Yeah, and the fact that you guys are choosing to manage your own assets should give uh, a lot of confidence to your investors. And uh, that's a great segue into the next question I wanted to ask you. With Harvard Grace, what's your approach to real estate syndication? Um, and, you know, I think you were advertising 15 plus ROI to your investors. How, what's your approach for that? The biggest approach is, is buying it right. If we can find an asset that you know, we're comfortable with its position, its location, and who, it's, and who the income payers to that asset are, and if we can buy it where we can generate a 1.4 times debt service coverage, that should allow us to, from day one, pay investors a minimum of a 6% cash on cash return. That's our approach. That's how we define success. We might stretch that you know, one way or the other. It's also in discussion with, with our investors. We also invest in each of our deals. So we are not just a sponsor. We're also in the class A group as well. Uh, but, but we have some investors and it's like, if we think it's going to be 5% cash on cash year one, but jump to 7% year two, you know, we think that's a good deal and a good buy. It's all just a, sort of a fluid due diligence uh, process and, and modeling process. Uh, yeah, it's been fun looking at our models changes for, with interest rates changing. Yeah, we we, we kind of lost a deal um, in January on a perfect asset, but the, and we came to terms, and then the seller took a month tweaking the, the uh, tweaking the contract, and but interest rates moved twice <laughs> during that time. It's like I can no longer afford to buy the price that we just agreed to. It was a great asset, and that seller wisely chose to hold it. Uh, maybe we can come back and try again a year or two. Yeah, you know, I was just at uh, a multifamily uh, investment conference up in Toronto a few weeks ago. And I mean, going through the vendor booths, there's so many syndications out there, so many. You know, what would you say is important for individuals to consider when they're choosing a firm? Uh, because this is really true passive property investing. What, what are the pitfalls? Well, the, the pitfall is, um, the biggest is, uh, how well do you know your syndicator? Uh, we actually um, have a checklist or a guide on our website that anybody can download, you know, how to evaluate your, your, your deal sponsor. You, you need to look at other deals they've done. You should ask them for uh, references to some of their other passive investors and what their experiences have. Ask them for 
uh, I want to see copies of reporting that you're doing on some of your other deals. And how often does that, does that come out? And how often does do I get paid? If there's any uneasiness uh, or, or lack of re, you know, response on any of that, you know, I'd be wary. Uh, I mean, people get busy, but uh, all of those things are should be um, made readily available to you. You, you know, uh, what's their history? How many deals have they um, taken full cycle and whatnot? But um, but the biggest thing is you've got to develop a level of trust with your sponsor. We we do all of our deals as a 506C, which means that we can generally solicit our deals. But we have we develop a relationship with every single one of our investors because one of the other things I've learned along the way is I don't want to be partnered with anybody that I don't want to be partnered with because we do maintain a service level. We talk with our investors a great deal, which gets harder and harder the more we have. You know, the one guy who's never happy can disrupt your whole operation. And as a matter of fact, about 60 days ago, we had a guy who was not happy. And yeah, I just said, do you want us to just buy you out? And he said, yes. And we did. And I had almost every single one of my investors in that deal say, I'll take a share. So, so everybody else was happy and they, they, they wanted more. That was the most difficult part about it was, all right, well, who do, who do I let do it? So, you know, so, but, but it was very rewarding. Everybody else was completely happy. Yeah. Relationships. I mean, investors, they're not just coming with a checkbook, right? They're partners. And I mean, literally in the sense, because you guys are, are have equity in each deal. And yeah, it's so important. I, I mean, I, I like what I'm hearing. I hope the audience does. And, you know, obviously, uh, part of us getting together today is making a little bit more awareness of Harvard Grace. But l- let's transition into risks, because really, there's risk with, with any type of investing. Um, some people would say real estate is great, the returns are great, but the risks and then there's you know different types of risk with commercial. How would you say that your firm manages and mitigates the risks associated with commercial real estate investing? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question. So obviously, the, talking about my history and my experience, my entire approach has been uh, crafted from all of that to manage risk. Because not only are we investing, but you know I'm guaranteeing the debt on each one of these things. So uh, I'm acutely aware uh, of, of the risk profile. Uh, we're not doing anything with uh, variable interest rates. And we can do that because we're only buying stabilized assets. And what does that mean, stabilized? That means it has achieved at least a market level of, of occupancy and recurring cash flow. Uh, and, and there's really nothing left to be done. There's no development risks still in place. So the, the property is done. It's finished. It's got all the government approvals. All the tenants are in and they're paying rent. So when you approach that kind of asset, uh, you're really mitigating, you're, you're eliminating a whole category of risks. So you, you can set a lot of that aside. I think we de-risk our deals just about as much as any investment can be. Anybody who's held any stock, you know, has has rode the merry-go-round for the last uh, three years. I'll just pick on Verizon. I love Verizon. They're a great company. And and I bought them as part of a uh, dividend-paying portfolio that I'd, and and I'm in that stock, I think, at about 55 bucks. They're still paying their dividend, which is awesome. But, you know, these days I haven't looked 
last couple. These days it's at 36. Now, uh, God bless them. I mean, they're they're still paying that dividend that, that I bought into. Of course, that yield has doubled. <laughs> you know, so I actually thought about buying more at 36, but I, I think it's a it's a good company. You're generally not going to see that kind of risk with uh, with real estate. Can you see price volatility? Yes, we've observed that in the last 12 months. When interest rates do what they do and the value of your real estate asset is inextricably tied to the interest rates uh, and, and because leverage is such a key component uh, to investing in real estate. That's what makes real estate investing work the best. Yes, that has brought some price stability, but uh, instability to, to real estate. No, ri- no investment choice is risk-free. If you want no risk whatsoever, you know, go get your 5% CDs at the bank. hundred so. <laughs> percent. Um, no, but I mean, you touched on it, residential real estate, maybe you're buying into something with, with the syndication and you're waiting and your money's tied up for two, three, four years because they haven't even broken ground yet. Speak to me a little bit about, not necessarily, unless you guys have seen these types of mistakes with your own firm, but what could go wrong with commercial real estate if you're not... Uh, managing your risks correctly. You touched on a few, but I'd, I'd like some, you know, some types of examples, some analogies. Uh, specifically with our type of deals or just commercial yeah, real estate? Well, not general? your, like your deals, it sounds like you guys are doing, you know, your extra research and, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, interest and stabilized assets and tenants already in place. But, you know, if somebody's getting into this and they're like, oh, commercial's great, I'm going to do X expecting Y, what types of risks are, are out there and mistakes to be made? I, I wouldn't want to do anything, and I would advise investors to ask uh, about the financing that is in place. You know, we've already seen in the news a few big uh, commercial deals that have gone back to banks because they were in variable rate uh, notes. You know, And there's a lot of temptation to float your rate at either the bottom end or the top end of the market. Uh, and and I get that it's uh, you, you know to fix your rate you're always paying a little bit more than you could if you were floating but you don't have have the risk so there's that there's always um, you know environmental risks be that um, weather related um, things of that nature look look at your tenant portfolio if you are significantly dependent. If the property is significantly dependent on one tenant, and maybe you've got several, but but one of them uh, is huge, and perhaps some of the other smaller ones also work for that tenant, uh, then you've got a concentration risk, uh, revenue concentration risk uh, in that particular property. One, one thing to keep in mind that whatever business your tenants are in, you're in that business, uh, it, it, which is why we are focusing on the consumer-facing properties uh, right now. You need to analyze the risks that, um, that, uh, that your tenants face as well. Uh, so to me, if you can uh, de-risk the income stream and then de-risk the capitalization, the financing of it, uh, the rest of it you can pretty much insure around. I mean, the weather, environmental related, you can get insurance for that. Nobody wants the disruption, but it does happen. I mean, we had a property that uh, uh, got hit by straight line winds in 2020 and, um, uh, and, and, you know, it's all good now. 
but uh, it was just disruption. It was just something that happens. Uh, actually made a little money uh, through the insurance. <laughs> so, but those kind of things can happen. I'm not sure I'm answering. No, you are. Absolutely. No, it's uh, like I, I'm silent because I'm taking notes here. And I, I love the uh, perspective because, um, you know, uh, in my space up here, a lot of people are really, I, I want to say almost hyper-focused on, on res, uh, residential which is considered commercial, but residential, right? So I think it, it was really great. But let's speak about the future. What's, what's the future plans for Harvard Grace? What opportunities do you see emerging in the commercial real estate market? We, uh, we continue to analyze deals on a one-by-one -one basis. Now, I'm not the first person who've said this. They've been talking about it in the news, I think, since October. But we're, all of us should be aware that there are $2 trillion worth of commercial mortgages coming due beginning sometime in Q3 and, and you know, for 12 months beginning in, in Q3. Uh, there's an awful lot of people who are not going to be able to afford to refinance their, their notes. Either they're bad managers or they, uh, they haven't kept up with their leases, as we've talked about before. They haven't kept up with CAM charges. Uh, and and when you got a commercial property and doing multi-year leases, you just can't up and say, "All right, next month your 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 rent is is X." Can't do that. You are in a financial contract, uh, you know, which is not dissimilar from a bond. And so you just can't pivot. You just can't create more income. Uh, and so their 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 debts is is going to increase two or maybe more times. You know, a lot of those mortgages are in the 3% range. Uh, most of them are in the fours. If you refinance today, you're probably at 7.75 or 8, depending on where you are and, and how hungry the lenders are. And there are an awful lot of hungry lenders out there, but even but they can't, they can't fight the Fed because they borrow at a rate and then lend at a rate. So I think that's a generational opportunity that's coming very much like, uh, you know, towards the end of the last financial crisis, that was a generational opportunity to get into some quality assets uh, and, and at, at really attractive prices because the seller has to sell. It's a complete flip of the paradigm. It's been a seller's market for many, many years. That's about to change. Uh, now, a lot of that may be highly localized. I have no idea how that's going to impact our geographic target area. At the end of the day, you can't just run out there and buy a bunch of stuff. It's still you still got to do your analysis on a deal by deal basis. But uh, I would say anybody who's looking should be prepared to do more deal analysis. You know that that there should be more deals coming your way, and and if you want to take advantage of that, be able to to. To analyze them faster. Yeah. Well, we should uh, we should do a twelve month uh, touch base and see where the market's at. Um, well, it's been it's been great, Stuart. And you know this is coming because I ask every guest this question, so I want to know what you have to say. Uh, this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success, and what does winning look like for you? Well, I define success uh, from a very personal level. Uh, yeah, I've been through my economic challenges and that had a very personal cost. So um, ultimately, everything that I do is for uh, my wife and my kids. And um, I know everybody says that, but but generally, that's who I am um, 
doing all of this for? And if I can provide for them um, and, and help set them up, uh, you know, my kids in life, then then that's success to me. I, I would also extend that when I can deliver or beat my projections to my investors, that's a massive success. And yes, I'm an investor, but uh, but uh, I mean that's. I just love uh, you know, beating uh, beating what I said I was going to do for, and and sending them more money than than, than uh, what I had projected. So that also is success for me. So. No, I uh, both of those resonate with me. Um, as you know, I'm a family guy, um, and I value that time with them more than anything. But yes, absolutely, under promise, over deliver. Um, I love that. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for connecting with us and for coming on the podcast. And I wish you best of luck with Harvard Grace. And we'll throw your, um, your contact information in the show notes so people can get in touch with you and figure out uh, next steps with you, with you folks. Thanks, Garrett, for having me. It's been an honor. <laughs> okay. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to win is not only about helping you to win more, but win actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.